Good morning. All right, this morning we're going to look two very familiar stories found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. So if we could turn in our Bibles there. We would just like to read the entirety of the stories. It's not very long. Um, plus if I screw something up, uh, at least I won't screw this portion up. It's the Word of God, right? We're going to start reading in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 22. And the Word of God reads as such. Now it came to pass on a certain day when he went into a ship with his disciples and said to them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But when they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm wind on the lake. And they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And, when, and they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose, rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth. Even the winds and the water, and they obey him. When they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee, and went he and when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a man which had devils a long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. With a loud voice said, What have I got to do with thee, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For at times it had caught him, and kept, when he was kept bound with chains and fetters, he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. But Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name and he said legion because many devils were entered into him and they besought him that he would not come that he would not command them to go out into the deep and there was there in a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them and he suffered them and then the devils out of the man entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked or drowned. When they, when, when they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and told it into the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found a man of whom the devils were departed sitting at his feet, sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also, they also which saw it, told it by what means was possessed of many devils was healed. And the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes around about besought him that he would depart from them. For they were taken with great fear and went up into the ship and returned back again. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with them. And Jesus sent them away, saying, Return to thine own house, and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went away, published th 
throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done unto him. This time, let's just look to the Lord for guidance as we meditate on this portion of Scripture. Our gracious Lord and our Father, we're thankful for such wonderful stories that are just not stories, but they were actual history, events that occurred, stories of the Almighty One, how He left the splendor of heaven, took a veil of flesh, and walked amongst His creation, and did such miracles to reveal Himself, to show unto humanity the power of the Father and the love of the Father and the mercy and grace all bestowed in His person. We would ask that we would uh, be enlightened this morning as we read about Him, about these miracles, that they would have an effect on our lives today, many, many years after the events had occurred. Father, we ask for the blessing on the congregation, the ones that are away in traveling. Be with them, Lord. In Your Son's most precious name, we do pray. Amen. Amen. So, here we see two stories. One story kind of leading up to the second story, right? There was a journey which Jesus requested. It was not the disciples that requested the journey. It was Jesus Christ. He, he got into the ship and told his disciples, let's go onto the other side. Right? So, Jesus was determined to cross the Great Lake, the Sea of Galilee, to get to the other side, to meet this very uh, poor individual that was in a wretched state. And what I want to focus on is the sentence of the first question that Jesus Christ would ask of this man. What is thy name? What is thy name? What is, what is a name? A name is just a series or a sequence of letters that make a sound. But it's not something that's just a common word, as the word common, or as the word chair. It, it's something that signifies something special. Yes, it's something unique. A name represents a person, the personhood, your being, the person that God created that's unique. There's none like you, right? My name is David. You could say it's a common name. There's a couple Davids. Uh, there's one here in the chapel. Uh, was away at the moment. But even though we have the same name, we're different people. And that name, which our parents would associate to us, would identify me, the person that God created in His image. That's unique. There's none like it. What is thy name? The Savior would ask of this man. Before we start considering what is this person's name, what is the significance of his name, let us consider by the means how they got there. We see, again, that it was Jesus Christ who initiated the trip. Let's go cross, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. Right? Now, here is Jesus Christ saying a simple statement, let us cross over to the other side. We just sang, with Christ in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. In a sense, it's, it's a song for children, but we could have confidence, right? If Christ is in the vessel, we could be confident. And that's a lesson to the believer. If you're clinging on to Christ, if He's in your life, in your vessel, you could go through this life 
yes, there's going to be trials, there's going to be tribulations, there's going to be storms coming, right? But if Christ is in the vessel, if He is directing your life, we could be confident that we are safe, safe, right? Christ has blessed us with many things, right? Uh, the scripture doesn't say that He's blessed us with earthly things. He says He's blessed us with all spiritual things in heavenly places. He saved us. He sealed us. He's reconciled us. We are, are no longer slaves of sin. And one day we'll be perfect when we get to His presence. But again, He's making a promise or a statement to His disciples. Let us go to the other side. And when he, they were in the ship, we see a bit of Christ's humanity, the side of His humanity. He just got done ministering and speaking countless hours and days, ministering to people, healing people. He did the, the whole Sermon of the Mount. Imagine that wouldn't be something quick. And between uh, sermons, He would be walking, He would be healing people, He would be exhausted. And here we see a bit of Christ's humanity. Who is this Christ? Well, not only was He full God, He was, he was man. And He was tired, He was exhausted. So He would fall asleep as they crossed to the other side of the lake. Then comes the storm and then panic. They see that the ship is getting filled with water. That's just a natural reaction. I would have done the same, right? I'm not saying that I would have had greater faith than His disciples. But they have no other resort in their minds but to wake the Master. Master, Master, we perish, right? There's this great uh, storm here. We're going to die. He gets up and it says that he arose, rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. They ceased. Now that's not a surprise, but they were surprised. I guess they've seen many miracles, but this, to this point, surprised them. And it says that they were afraid. They said one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now this comes after a statement where Christ is asking, Where is your faith? I don't believe he, here he was questioning their salvation. I think he was questioning... Where are they placing their faith? On the boat? On their ability to be experienced sailors, which they were? Or is it in Jesus Christ's specific word? Let us cross to the other side. And, and we, we, we've heard many things about faith. And one of the things that kind of sticks to me is taking Christ or taking God at His word. Right? That's simple. The word faith. Faith. Trust. Christ said a sentence. You just have to take him at his word. Where is your faith? I said we're going to go to the other side. Believe me, we're going to go to the other side. Taking Christ at his word. So now let's, let's uh, take a moment and ponder the disciples' questions here. What manner of man is this? Right? This very man that would approach this man that's demon-possessed and ask him, What is thy name? Who are you? Are you just some random person that succumbed to uh, some kind of sin, some kind of temptation that's been possessed, that has no control, not, that has no value, that has nothing of what you were created for? What is thy name? The Savior would ask. What is thy name? 
Well, now let's let's question who is this this person? What manner of man is this? For this, um, I would like to turn to the book of Proverbs. As you know, the book of Proverbs, the majority was written by such a man named Solomon. He was the wisest man, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk on the face of this earth. When Christ, when God would speak to him of what he would like as a gift to be bestowed upon him to rule his people, he asked for wisdom. And, and God endowed him with such wisdom in all aspects of life, some of them which kind of backfired on him. But these last few chapters in um, the book of Proverbs were not written by Solomon. They're called the appendix chapters. Some of them they state different writers. Uh, some of them may not be the physical name of the person, but like a title, maybe somebody that was writing down words of a, a wise man, a scribe. Um, but in chapter 30, again, with the question in mind, who is this man? Who is this man that commands the winds and rebukes the water? Who is this man? Look what it says in verse 3. And this is the writer speaking to himself. Neither learned, I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the holy. This is a man speaking. I don't have the knowledge of the Holy One. There's a great separation there. And this was an issue in the Old Testament. They didn't have that one God, that one mediator that would communicate. God Himself would have to communicate through the prophets and the priests. And they wouldn't have this intimate connection, right? That we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, Who hath ascended up into heaven? Or... Descended, right? That question was asked this morning in the Lord's Supper when it was, when the, the passage in John chapter 1 was brought up. Who ascended and who descended, right? There's only one person in history of humanity that has done that. That ascended from heaven, came down from heaven to earth and ascended again, right? You think of, uh, that very famous passage in John chapter 3 between Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus Christ where he would tell him you have to be born again. If you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus being a teacher, a ruler of the Jews is astounded. And Christ would tell him no one has descended, right? No one, nobody knows this. Nobody has descended from heaven except the Son of Man, Nicodemus. I am basically the only source that could tell you this. Nobody has this knowledge. And again, it is emphasized in the Old Testament. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Right? There's many people that say they believe in God. And you would read to them this passage. Who is this speaking about here? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? They would say, God, of course. God, He controls everything, right? Not having knowledge of Scripture. They would, if they're a religious person, they'll say, yes, it's God. Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who controls the waves, the currents? They would say, God, of course. It's God that controls the currents and the waves. 
Who hath established all the ends of the earth? God. God. It's a simple answer. It's pretty obvious. The writer's writing, it's almost like rhetorical question. Who has done these things? And it kind of reminds me. You remember in the, the book of Job, right? There's the, the, that communication between Satan and God about his servant Job. Then comes the trials. And the man is brought from being up here to the lowliest place anybody could be. Then there's a discourse between him and his friends. And then finally at the end, God responds to Job. Where were you, Job? Where were you when I established the earth? And he starts asking him, where were you when I did this, when I did that? It's God that created everything, controls everything. Everything that has to do with creation, with the winds, with the water. Who hath established the ends of the earth? What is his name? Earl, you said it was? God. It was God. God established the ends of the earth. What is his name, right? It's who we're speaking about. But wait. Look at this next statement. And what is his son's name? Jesus. If thou canst tell. This is the Old Testament here. What is his son's? His son's name. This is the very one that we're reading the passage about. The Lord Jesus Christ. To this Old Testament prophet, it wasn't revealed the person of Jesus Christ. They knew of the coming Messiah. This is the very one where it says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Which is the plural form of God, if you look in the Greek. When it says, let us, us make man in our image. That is God speaking to who? Man. To, no, to Jesus, to, to His Son, right? The triune God. So here is this man. And here we go back to our passage. In Luke chapter 8. What manner of man is this? Well, the answer is simple. It's not just simply a man. It's Jesus Christ. When Jesus would ask the disciples, Whom do men say that I am? And they would guess, say a few things what the people would say. They would filter out some of the bad things out of love and respect for Christ, right? They didn't say that you're a drunkard, you're demon-possessed, you eat with Republicans. No, they would say that, some say thou art Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But whom do you say them? You are the Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ, right? They, 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 they had this revealed to them, and, and Christ would go, flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, Peter, right? This is a great truth. That Jesus Christ was God. He was the Son of God. Descended from heaven. Taking a veil of flesh. The one that holds the winds in his fists. In John chapter 1, when John is writing about Jesus Christ, it says, By him all things were made. And there's nothing that was made that wasn't made through him. I'm paraphrasing here. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, All things were created by Him and for Him. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He was always there. It's hard for us to grasp that eternity past. This being that came and walked amongst His creation was the very Creator. Right? What manner of man is this? What manner of man is this? Right? He's the all-powerful God. 
And the question, my question now goes to, to this. His name. What is His name? It's Jesus Christ. It's revealed to us. Who can save this man? Right? Who can save this man? Again, there's a, a very familiar passage. I'm going to go to it. The, the kids quote it. And this is found in uh, Acts chapter 4. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given amongst men, whereby we must be saved. That is the name, the only name that could save, right? And here in this passage, Peter and some of the disciples were, were taken before the Caiaphas, the high priest, the ones that were there present when Jesus Christ was uh, executed and crucified. The people that witnessed that, and they would see Christ's disciples performing miracles, and they would question them. And they would tell them to stop, and they would say, these being unlearned men. Just kind of like that prophet of old in Proverbs chapter 31, where he says, I am an unlearned man. They're saying, these are unlearned people. How are they doing these things? And they would eventually say, we ought to obey, O God, rather than men. And they would give this beautiful verse, neither is there salvation in, in any other, for there is none other name. No other name, right? If you're looking for salvation, it's not going to be through good works. It's not going to be through a person. It's not going to be through any good teacher. But it's through Christ. There is no other name that we can be saved. And here comes the one. What manner of man is this? What is his son's name, if thou canst tell? And here comes Christ, determined with a, a goal. Right? He goes, we're going to cross this lake. He doesn't tell his disciples probably why. We're going to cross this lake through a storm. I have a man to save. He has the power to save. Verse 26, it says that they arrived to the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. Right? The geographical important significance here is that this is in the borders of Israel's territory. What that means is it's a mixed crowd. It's most likely there's a lot of Jews and a lot of Gentiles. Now, we know in the Old Testament, different laws would apply from God to the Jews. And we're going to see that towards the latter part of the story. And here went out a man, right? Probably with his last free will that he had to meet Jesus. Jesus Christ was going directly to meet this man. And he was in a wretched state. He bore no clothing. He had scars. He lived amongst the tombs. How did this man get that way? I mean, it wasn't... I venture to tell you, brother and sister, it wasn't all his doing. In this world, there is a power, a, such great power that deceives many. Many are on that path to destruction. Many take that broad road, as it would give that parable in Matthew. Many take that broad road. And they're not there out of coincidence. Yes, we are all sinners. We all have sinned, right? We, we all are born under Adam, in a sense. But there is a great power working amongst this world that deceives many. 
And I tell you that he's still working today. Many people say they're atheists. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in the devil. And the devil's perfectly fine with that. But the devil's out there and he's doing a terrible work. And he's taking this man to the point of almost no return. He's completely destroyed his life. One commentator would say that he was looking to destroy this man. And he looks to destroy men. Maybe because they're created in the image of God. And that's something that he would despise. And he's taken to this man to the place where he's lost all his humanity. The devil. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 2 would say that the prince of this world, the prince of this world, this is, it's not talking about Christ, it's not talking about God, that he's having them walk according to his power. Ephesians 2 verse 2. He deceives people. He makes them walk according to his will. Right? In Corinthians chapter 2, I mean chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it will say that the God of this world hath blinded, blinded their minds. Satan is at work. And he does it through various pleasures, various sins, various addictions. A majority, in my opinion, through religion. How many has he blinded through religion? Something that's apparently good. We're doing good works. Neglecting Jesus, neglecting God, neglecting sin. I was talking with uh, Lisa Matthews the other night. The other night, we're just talking about Mormons, and you consider the religion of Mormons and the religions of of the Muslims. How many millions have been deceived? You always hear that that uh, stat. There's 1.3 billion Muslims in the world, right? They're proud of that. They boast. Think about how many Satan has deceived through religion. I recall that the Apostle Paul would say, if anyone preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. Jesus Christ would say that, that Satan himself could, could uh, uh, clothe himself, disguise himself as a shining angel and deceive. And to be honest, I, I honestly believe that the prophet Muhammad, thinking he might have seen Gabriel the angel and supposedly given him the Quran, was probably the devil himself. Very similar with that Joseph Smith in, in, with the Mormons. Supposedly an angel revealed to him the Book of Mormon. Think about how many have been deceived through the devil. And Christ doesn't go there rebuking him. How dare you let the devil possess you? How could you get to this state? No. The Savior's gracious. He goes to him. He crosses the lake for him. What is thy name? Who are you? Are you just a capsule full of demons? Is that who you are? Is that what you were created for? Is that the purpose of your life? What is thy name? The Savior would ask. What is thy name? This man was once created in the image of God. He was given a name by his parents as a unique person with infinite value, right? Infinite value. Why God will place such value on humanity? So, I mean, we could question that when we, we get to heaven. We could ask the Savior. But it was because of sin. One sin. I mean, I, I want you to con consider the gravity of sin. For one sin committed in heaven, a third of the angels were cast out. 
for one sin created in the, uh, committed in the Garden of Eden would uh, just roll downfield, I mean just a collapse of humanity into sin. And it would cost God everything He had. He would set in place a plan of salvation that would cost Him the one thing that was precious and dear to Him to redeem humanity because of sin. And here is this man. What is thy name? The Savior would graciously ask him, what is thy name? Are you just a person that succumbed to temptation, to your sins, that has no controls? How did it, how did it begin with this man? Perhaps it was one thing at a time, something that might have seemed uh, innocent. And Satan gets just one foot in the, the door, and it just keeps going and going. And you see it nowadays where people will start experimenting with something, and eventually whatever thing it is will just control their lives. And this man will find himself in a state where he himself had no control. He could not control the powers that were within him. Isn't that true about sin? How sin you could be enjoyed for a time, for a season as the Bible would say, but it would bring corruption and it would bring destruction. It could be something as simple as thoughts of jealousy, envy, pride, but that stuff would grow. It could grow into addictions, into pleasures, but this man was in a state where he could not control the powers that were within him. We all sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're not above sin. But we have been redeemed. Those of us who have claimed Christ as their Savior, who have met the Savior. And He's gracious enough to provide us in our need. And this man was in dire need. What is thy name? Well, what is the name of the person that could save? We ask the question. Jesus. Jesus. There is no name given among men whereby we must be saved. And this man was meeting the Savior. And he would graciously ask him, What is thy name? It is not legion. I'll tell you that. It's not this thing that has him possessed. And Christ would cast out the demons graciously. And save this man. Christ came to this world to save us. He saves us in various ways. The Savior came into this world to die on the cross. That our guilt might be put away from the presence of God. He rose again to seal us with the Holy Spirit. And He ever lives to make intercession for us as a forerunner. To guarantee our entering into heaven. And this man would just approach Christ. You could almost see it as with the very last ounce of free will that he had. He would want to go to the Savior. And that's true today. To what extent can somebody be saved? There's some people that that person is far gone. There's no hope for that person. Take this story as an example. There is no such thing when there's still free will. The Christ is always there. He's always willing As the brother mentioned, the prodigal son, the dad would just run out. As soon as the son would approach, the the father wouldn't wait for the son. The father would run to him and embrace him. What a vivid image of the Savior. Just how his attitude is to save somebody. The Savior goes to the sinner. It's not the other way around. Christ went across the lake to this man. He met him at the state that he was in. There was no nine-point plan for him to clean his life before he could come to the Savior. There was no, no plan of doing good works 
and trying to do this to get into a, 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 a presence with the Savior? What does it say in Romans chapter 10, verse 8? The word is nigh thee, even in thine own mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith. The word is nigh thee. Christ is almost waiting, waiting for you to make the confession. He's right there. He's wanting you to be saved. The minute that you turn to Him, He doesn't want you to, to approach Him, to follow, beg Him, to do all these things before He will give you the time of day. The Word is nigh thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart. He wants to save you. Just as He came to this man. There's that very familiar verse in Revelations 3.20 the image of Christ standing at the door. He's knocking. He's wanting you to answer, right? We have the kids sing this song. And that's the Savior that we have. That's the Savior, personable. He wants you. He wants to save your soul. He wants you to be you. He doesn't want you to be a legion. He wants to save you and make you into the image of His Son. He doesn't want you to be a slave to sin. As this man was. How this man was in the brink of destruction. Almost losing all of his humanity. Yet the Savior would come. The Savior would come and save him. The Savior came, I tell you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. You don't know the Savior. You don't know the God that created us. And his son's name, if thou canst tell. The one who holds the very winds in his fist. The one who's all powerful. But the one who came and died to save you. If you don't know him this morning. There will be a point where it's too late. Where you will pass from this life. And there will be no second chances. Come to the Savior. While there's still time. Come to the Savior while you still have a free will. Like we begin saying, names are something very special. They describe a unique person. They describe personalities. They describe you. You, who God created in His image. They don't describe an addict. They don't describe somebody that's taken over by sin. They don't describe somebody that identifies with sin. Like this demon-possessed man. They identify you, somebody that was created in the image of God. The world would have this great big lie that you have to be free. You have to be king of your own domain. You have to be king of your own life. You have to do what you would want to do to enjoy life, right? Isn't that the, the, the lie of the devil in a sense? And Malcolm would always give that... Ever since I was a kid, and I never forget it, he would always give that example of this, not a, a very, not, not a believing band by any means, the Rolling Stones, when they would write that song, I can't get no satisfaction. What a, I mean, the wisdom of that song would say, but I try, and I try, and I keep trying. That's, I mean, that's lyrics from, from a band, right? What I mean, that, that's just the endless cycle that this word, world has to offer. The great big lie. When satisfaction is found in none other than Christ. That's where your true freedom is. 
when you seek to be free from God, from your creator, and seek to do what you will, the opposite ends up happening. You become enslaved. Enslaved to sin. Enslaved to things you can't control, such as this man, to the point where you have no hope. Ephesians 2.12, Paul would say that at that time you were without Christ, right? With, being without Christ is having no hope without God in this world. Without God, there's no hope. Without Christ, there's no hope, right? And this lie that the devil has very effectively sold to the world about you having control, when in reality, you get taken over. What is your name, really? Well, what Christ wants it to be, wants it to be you plus Christ. He wants Christ to be the center of your life. He wants Christ to ha have that life in you. In 1 John, we would read of that fellowship that we have with the Father through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Later, that epistle, that letter would read, He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. As simply simple as the writer could write it, as he could express it. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. You don't have fellowship with the Father. You don't have eternal life. And you won't have satisfaction. We are out of time, but I would just like to point out the beautiful victory that was had that day. When this man would be without demons and the people would find him in the right mind, sitting at the feet of Christ, of his Creator. What a drastic contrast to what he was before. Somebody that would break chains and bounds that they tied him with, would rip off his clothes that would hurt himself, running through a tomb, right? And perhaps the Gadarenes at some point showed some kind of humanity. There's people out there that are not saved that would show humanity. They would want to save the animals, save the dogs, the cats, feed the hungry kids, but they don't acknowledge the Creator, the Savior, right? Perhaps these people had some kind of empathy towards this man and they probably tried to bind him so that he wouldn't hurt himself. They would try to clothe him, put him in a house. But eventually, he became so far removed that he would break those things. He would hurt himself and he would dwell amongst the tombs. That sounds terrifying to me, by the way. That I would be afraid of, right? Somehow, that didn't bring fear to these Gadarenes. But somehow, Jesus Christ casting out that legion into a herd of swine would bring great fear. It reminds me a little bit of nowadays, right? Hey man, you want to be friends? I'll be your friend. You want to do these things? We'll do these things. We want to help the, the hungry kids? I'm with you. You want to talk to me about Christ? I mean, you, you don't have to go there. We could be friends. Don't bring religion. Don't bring your God into a relationship. I mean, we, we could have something here. Happens. As soon as people hear the name Christ, go away. Go away. And perhaps it's they really like their swine. I know a few brothers and sisters that love pork. And they're very thankful that Christ and that, 
that uh, vision told Peter, kill and eat, right? That he has made these things clean, that they're, they're edible now. But at that time, it was identified for the Jews to not eat that food, for it was common. And it was supposed to symbolize them being a separate people, being holy. And somehow, I don't know if it was through the influence of where they were living, there was herd of swine there, which was against the law, which was sin. And perhaps they wanted to enjoy their sin. They didn't want to acknowledge the Savior. Isn't that something? They were okay with a demon-possessed man dwelling amongst the tombs, strong enough to break chains, but they were afraid of the Savior who put him in his right mind instead of being saved. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that we would appreciate the Savior for what He has done, what He does. If you're not here and you haven't met the Savior, pray that you would turn to Him before it gets to a point where it's too late. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and our Father, we're thankful for Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that in Him we have salvation, for there is no other name given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Yes, He is all-powerful, but He is gracious and merciful, and He died for us. We would ask that His name would get the glory this morning. Just bless His congregation as we depart. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.